This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by the BMW Beetle. Have you ever wanted to feel like you could live the life of a Barbie girl? Try a BMW Beetle today. Earlier in the summer, as wildfires raged in Canada, we took a moment to say, yes, climate change is really scary and we need to address that. But even with climate change making wildfires worse, there are still wildfire solutions. If we act like we're in a climate apocalypse, we end up paralyzed in fear and make the issue a lot worse than it already is. Think about how everyone acted on The Walking Dead. But if we're proactive and prepared and have enough hot and sexy men in their late 40s on our side, we can handle it a lot better. Now that hurricane season is near complete, and I look back on some of the damage that came out of that and especially a lot of the floods, I wanted to share a similar sentiment. Floods have solutions too. Happy Friday, I'm Ethan Brown, and this is Tip of the Iceberg, where I will break down some environmental news and then answer a question from our listeners on the air. Submit questions via Patreon, email, or social media. Patron questions go to the front of the line, so sign up at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. The story that first inspired this topic for me actually came out of Libya. On September 10th, Storm Daniel caused devastation across eastern Libya, affecting approximately 884,000 residents, including around 353,000 children. The violent storm resulted in over 4,300 deaths, catastrophic dam failures, and widespread destruction of buildings and infrastructure in cities like Al-Baida, Al-Marj, and the coastal city of Derna. Understandably, the American embassy has advised anyone named Daniel to adjust their travel plans as to not, quote, rub salt in the wound. Libya's existing political turmoil and past conflicts have already weakened essential public services, exacerbating the storm's impact, particularly on health, social protection, and education. The disaster has further displaced over 16,000 children, exposing them to heightened risks of death, injury, disease outbreaks like cholera, and increased vulnerability to violence and exploitation due to family separations and the loss of parental protection. But sadly, that was far from the only flood to discuss. It's really getting all Evan Almighty up in here. For the record, we are not inviting two dung beetles on the Ark this time. I'm sorry, but they's got to go. To give you a sense of some of the many stories in recent months, in Myanmar, some 14,000 people have been displaced by heavy floods during this year's monsoon season. In Cameroon, heavy rains and mudslides devastated the capital Yaoundé on October 8th, leaving at least 30 dead. Dozens more were killed in northeast India after a glacial dam burst in the Himalayas on October 4th. And just last week, the worst flooding to hit Somalia in 
decades has killed 29 people and forced more than 300,000 to flee their homes. Floods in neighboring Kenya have killed at least 15 people and submerged a bridge in Uganda, cutting off a road linking Kampala to oil fields in the northwest. And if I hadn't depressed you enough, let's talk about this side of the Atlantic. I'd pop the Prozac now, it'll be worth it. We've already covered Hurricanes Hillary, Adelia, and Lee in past episodes, but there have been more stories since then. On September 1st, the Burning Man Festival in Nevada saw several months' worth of rain in a matter of hours, causing one casualty and leaving attendees stranded in mud with non-functional toilets. While not the intended audience, this turn of events did attract a few celebrities to the festival, as Shrek and his family were seen bathing in the sludge. To be fair, somebody once told me the world was gonna roll me. I ain't the sharpest tool. In my research, many news articles also made sure to point out right up at the top that the flood postponed the iconic burning of effigies, which I'm sure is important to festival attendees, but are we really putting a man dying and a minor inconvenience in the same sentence? That's like someone asking you what's up, and you're like, a man died today and I'm out of Pop-Tarts! The strawberry frosted ones, too. Then on September 29th, the east coast of the U.S. experienced tropical storm Ophelia. Ophelia, not to be confused with the TSA's slogan, I'll feel ya, combined with a weather system from the west to generate over six inches of rain in New York City in a day, suspending train lines, flooding schools and basements, and leading to a state of emergency in much of the tri-state area. Yes, six inches is more than enough sometimes. Apparently, the floods were so extreme that a sea lion named Sally was able to swim out of her enclosure at the Central Park Zoo, a turn of events many are describing as a disgusting, money-hungry marketing move by DreamWorks to advertise the upcoming Madagascar film installment. As for Alex the Lion, Gloria the Hippo, Marty the Zebra, and Melvin the Giraffe, sources close to them have revealed that they were hunkering down in East Hampton. I'd also like to point out, we've talked about how we rotate hurricane names every six years, but if a hurricane is really bad, we retire the name. Well, 2017's Hurricane Ophelia was the worst storm to affect Ireland in 50 years and the easternmost hurricane on record. Is that not enough to retire a name? I mean, I would have thought just the damage done by the Lumineers in 2016 would be retirement worthy. And of course, most recently, our neighbors to the south were hit by Hurricane Otis. Otis was the first hurricane to ever make landfall at Category 5 intensity in the Pacific, intensifying really quickly. One weather station measured a 205-mile-per-hour wind gust, one of the highest ever observed in the world. I mean, the only other time I've seen a 205-mile-per-hour wind gust was after I ate an entire Buffalo Wild Wings cheese curds appetizer by myself. Sorry, we're contractually obligated to make that joke every time we can. Just be happy we changed it from a Taco Bell joke this time. Otis caused a tremendous amount of damage. The city of Acapulco, Mexico, 
saw landslides, flooding, severe building damage, lost power, lack of drinking water, tens of billions in anticipated repair costs, and at least 48 casualties. And we could go on and on with more of these stories, but I'm supposed to be the funny climate guy who doesn't bum everyone out, and I'm doing a bad job at that, so let's move on and go over how climate change contributes to floods. Because that's better, I decided. As with wildfires, climate change doesn't cause a flood to happen, but it can make floods more intense. Several factors can cause a flood. Precipitation, snowmelt, topography, soil moisture, and Kevin James and grown-ups trying to climb out of an above-ground pool. I don't know why people say Adam Sandler went downhill after Happy Gilmore. Grown-ups is peak comedy, and I refuse to hear any argument otherwise. Also, Madison Riley, I'm single, I shower monthly, and I know how to cook. Call me. Floods can occur near a coast where ocean water intrudes, near a river, lake, or stream that overflows, in an urban area where stormwater drainage capacity is overwhelmed, or a flash flood where intense rain occurs absent any nearby water body. One of my mom's nicknames for me is actually Overwhelmed Urban Area, funnily enough. How does climate change play in? Well, a few ways. One, warmer temperatures lead more water to evaporate, which means more extreme rain events and more cloud mosh pits. Every thunderstorm is just them letting the base drop, if you didn't know. Two, as we've explained in many past episodes, hurricanes are becoming more intense. Three, due to thermal expansion and melting glaciers, sea levels are rising, which can make it easier for ocean water to inundate the land. And four, snowmelt is happening earlier, which can lead rivers to overflow earlier in the year than usual. On the plus side, the movie Frosty the Snowman will be a half hour shorter this year. But while all these things are true, there are also factors working in the other direction. Warmer temperatures often mean there is less snowmelt because there's less snow. Good for flooding, but bad for the three-year-olds who think the yellow snow is lemon-flavored. If snowmelt happens earlier, that also means it's not contributing to later storms. And perhaps most striking, if warmer temperatures are allowing water to evaporate from the soil, that means the soil suddenly has that freshly unwrapped sponge type of capacity to absorb stormwater and prevent it from flooding. Put all that together, and we find, according to a 2018 commentary in Water Resources Research, that climate change does not lead to more floods. What it does do is lead to the same, if not fewer, floods overall, but the floods that do happen become a lot more intense. Soils are now more equipped to absorb the smaller stuff, but the big rains and big hurricanes are going to be that much bigger. Who knew weather and wealth inequality were so similar? It's also worth noting that urban areas are especially vulnerable. While the capacity of soil to absorb water is improving due to climate change, cities don't have much soil. They rely on man-made stormwater drainage systems and a complex system of rat aqueducts. Without improvements to those systems, urban flooding is much more likely to worsen in a changing climate than anywhere else. Sadly, the floor at Papaya King isn't a particularly absorptive surface. 
All that said, like we discussed with wildfires, just because floods are intensifying due to climate change doesn't mean we're doomed and have to curl up in panic with our emergency boogie boards. Even as floods worsen, we can still take steps to both prevent them and minimize damage, and that starts with actually understanding flooding risks. The Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, creates maps based on historical flood data, which get used by communities, insurance companies, individuals looking to buy property, and smug British geckos whose jokes are just not funny anymore, but for some reason people still buy his insurance. I'm not bitter. The problem is, one, historical data does not include climate change, and two, huge swaths of the country don't have up-to-date maps or maps at all. According to the Natural Resources Defense Council, two-thirds of FEMA flood maps haven't been updated in five years, and some haven't been updated in 30 years which means some of these maps predate the existence of firehouse subs. I mean, come on, how can a map be remotely helpful if it doesn't have firehouse subs on it? And on top of that, according to Scientific American, only one-third of streams and 46% of coasts have actually been mapped by FEMA. And if an area isn't updated at the five-year mark, they just change its status to unknown which is really not helpful. If I'm looking to buy a house and I say, what's the risk of a 12-foot salamander breaking down my door and attacking my family, and you say, unknown, I'm going to be a lot more nervous making that purchase. But not having these maps, which is something very much in our control, I mean, Dora always has her map, that has real-world consequences. When record flooding hit Tennessee in 2021, Officials were not prepared for 17 inches of rain, and most homeowners were not covered under the National Flood Insurance Program. And on the flip side, when Hurricane Ida hit Louisiana, maps had not been updated to account for the city of Halma's 13-foot levee system, so the city spent a bunch of money on emergency flood protections to guard against a flood that never happened which I will say would have been a fantastic twist ending to the Noah's Ark story, if he built the ark, gathered all the animals, and then it was like a flash flood with an inch of rain. And then all of Noah's friends get mad because he bought all the toilet paper. I don't know, I, I think there's a lesson in that story. But whether it's being underprepared or wasting money overpreparing, it's really important to keep these maps up to date, get them right, and not rely entirely on historical data, given that climate change is making floods different. How do we do that? Of course, historical data still carries a lot of relevance, but we could also use geographical flood mapping. This takes into account the topography and land use to predict areas susceptible to flooding, Rio de Janeiro, for instance, has developed a Susceptibility to Floods Index that combines geography, proximity to water, and land permeability to highlight high-risk zones. In my opinion, that should come with a sort of guess-the-number-of-jelly-beans prize for residents who can accurately predict their score on the index, but that's just me. But we can take that a step further. 
A comprehensive flood risk assessment is a tool that delves deeper by integrating data on flood-prone areas with information about vulnerable populations and critical infrastructure. We can try advanced flood modeling, which is not hurricanes doing the catwalk, but a process that uses hydrodynamic analysis, incorporating varied data such as rainfall patterns, drainage systems, and land use. These sorts of models can also incorporate equity into flood mitigation efforts, ensuring that investments in flood protection also support historically disadvantaged communities. The challenge is that some of this mapping can be really expensive. The Association of State Floodplain Managers found it would cost between $3.2 billion and $11.8 billion to map the whole nation, assuming the GeoGuessr guy on TikTok won't do it for free, but seeing as the country spends $17 billion per year on flood cleanups, and these maps only need to be redrawn every five years or so, it may be a money-saving investment in the long run. Another option would be to delegate some of that work to state or local governments if FEMA is unable to do it, although they would need to have the right knowledge and resources. I'm sure Sylvester Stallone would be happy to give them a pep talk about how it's not how hard you hit, it's how hard you can get hit. Once we understand risk, there are a number of ways to address it. As an individual, if you live in even a low or moderate risk area, FEMA does recommend purchasing flood insurance. I know, more money in these stupid half-British, half-Australian geckos pockets, but... FEMA does say that there are affordable options out there. I just spotted a ninja in my closet, so I think this is the part of the show where I say GEICO can help you save 15% or more on car insurance. Or flood insurance. I have a wife and kids. Inside the home. Steps like using flood-resistant building materials, sealing foundation and basement walls, installing flood vents or sump pumps, raising electrical and HVAC equipment to a higher level, and keeping valuables away from flood-prone areas can help limit damage. And no, valuables don't include all the ketchup packets you've stolen from McDonald's the last 10 years. I'm not saying they're not valuable, I'm just saying you should sue McDonald's after the flood and get your 487 ketchup packets reimbursed easier for everyone. And outside the home, cleaning gutters, installing rain barrels, ensuring ground surfaces slope away from the home rather than toward it, retaining green space around the home, and even building new rain gardens or vegetable swales can make a difference. I know, I sound like your dad when he visits and suddenly you're in aisle 12 of Home Depot, but take your eyes off my deliciously seductive white New Balances for a moment and listen. Obviously, some of these ideas are free, while others either cost money or require permits, which can make it a hassle, but they're really just options, depending on how much you want to do. What about at a larger scale? Of course, there are many strategies to try to fend off floods. We can try to resist them through seawalls, levees, breakwaters, bulkheads, groins, jetties, revetments, sand piles, and... Wait, groins? Okay, I can admit that I won't be volunteering my groin anytime soon. For the record, groins are a structure used to maintain updrift beaches or to restrict longshore sediment transport, but I really think they could have picked a different name for that. It's like male chickens or people with the last name Johnson. 
we can also let nature fend off floods for us. According to Nature Conservancy, coastal marshes can reduce wave energy by over 50%, and mangroves can reduce the height and energy of waves by up to 66%. In fact, coastal wetlands provide storm protection valued at $23.2 billion every year in the U.S., and coral reefs provide $1.8 billion in flood protection benefits each year. Every dollar spent to restore wetlands and reefs results in $7 of direct flood reduction benefits, making these coastal ecosystems a really valuable investment. I mean, those numbers are even better than Enron. We can also try to avert floods through curbs, gutters, drains, piping, collection systems, gulping, slurping, glurping, flurping, or by building on higher ground or raising existing structures. We have episodes on stormwater, which explores some of these solutions, and on stilt houses, which is one way to avoid floods. And again, nature-based solutions can effectively do some of this work, too. This green infrastructure can take the form of rain gardens, stormwater planters, green roofs, swales, porous paving, urban forests, and more. These systems can not just reduce flood risk, but retain water, remove contaminants, and offer completely unrelated benefits to a community, and still fit perfectly into your vintage cottagecore croquette aesthetic. The CDC found that urban forests can reduce local air temperatures by up to 9 degrees Fahrenheit, which helps reduce urban heat islands. And studies have found that walking past green spaces lowers heart rates, reduces stress, heightens short-term memory, and can even reduce the symptoms of clinical depression. Which is promising, but also means that I should check if one of my writers was serious when she told me she was going to plant her SSRIs around the city to, quote, spread the love. Green infrastructure certainly isn't perfect. It costs money. It can have some surprising social consequences, which we explored in our gentrification episode. But again, so many options to explore. And if I can add one more point to think about, as useful as all these solutions are, you'll notice that most of them are some form of either resisting floods or averting floods or otherwise fighting them. It's like we're siblings, and the flood pins us down on the bed, and we start kicking our legs as fast as we can so the flood can't tickle us. And resisting floods is obviously important. But we can also stop and think about approaches that don't require bending water to our will, like Beckham. I'ma bend it. No, please. No, 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 no. Before the Flood Control Act of 1917, state and local governments were the ones responsible for flood management. Through that act, the federal government came in, built tons of levees to protect flood-prone communities, and split the cost of construction. And that's great. It certainly helps people. But it also had some consequences. It created more incentive to build and live in a flood-prone area, and it gave the perception that the federal government will just fix all of our flood problems. And those attitudes seem to persist a century later, which is really shocking. I mean, the only attitudes from a century ago that persist today are that, insisting Pluto actually is a planet, and believing that mustaches are the ultimate sign of trustworthiness. I guess the mustaches have always been a thing, to be fair. 
127 million Americans have chosen to live in coastal counties, and coastal property is often worth double that of non-coastal property, with many communities actually wanting people to live there because of high property taxes. A nature climate change study from earlier this year found residential properties exposed to flood risk are overvalued by $121 to $237 billion, concentrated largely in coastal communities with no flood risk disclosure laws. And as for all those levies, the average levy is now over 50 years old and certainly not built to handle the more intense floods that climate change is bringing. Dwayne Johnson is 51, though, so maybe I shouldn't judge a book by its cover. So while investments in flood protection are one strategy, it's not the only one. Similar to dealing with a boyfriend who has too close of a relationship with his mom, an approach that values getting away from floods instead of trying to control them, while challenging in the short term, could be worthwhile in the long term. Some have proposed designing communities with retention areas that we simply let flood, or even soup cauldrons with some stock and potatoes. And when that flood comes, baby, you've got a stew going. Or at least Mother Nature's jungle juice. Some have proposed limiting FEMA aid in order to reduce the incentives for state and local communities to build in flood-prone areas, or offering grants or more aid to communities who build away from floods. FEMA does also have a home buyout program where they help local governments buy homes in floodplains and demolish them, and if anyone from FEMA is listening, I would like to volunteer to do the demolishing. I've got some frustration to take out. But home purchases can have delays as high as five years and often leave low-income homeowners underserved. Fixing programs like that to offer more support for homeowners, speeding up the timeline, and maybe even delegate more to local and state governments to reduce red tape could help. Also, recognizing that these homes may have deflated values because they are in a floodplain is important. It may make sense for communities to overpay so that homeowners can actually afford to relocate to somewhere safe. It's like when a salesman convinced me I need a $5,000 encyclopedia in my apartment, neglected to tell me there's a thing called the internet, and now I'm out $5,000 because I can't sell this thing. Well, In that case, it was my fault, but if a city knew about flood risks and didn't disclose it, the least they can do is make those families whole again. And of course, going back to the top, assessing and communicating flood risk. Markets only work if consumers have full information. No secrets, no skeletons, no sketchy schemes. I know it costs a lot to get those numbers, and I understand not wanting to create more regulations to mandate people report them, but doing that one thing could be enough to dissuade consumers from buying homes in a floodplain, or worse, near a Margaritaville. If people understand the risks, understand that 50-year-old levies aren't going to save them unless it's the Dwayne Johnson one, maybe have to take some personal responsibility via flood insurance, and most importantly, have other affordable housing options they can choose from in their community, which is a whole other conversation, then that's perhaps the best outcome. People make smart decisions themselves, and governments don't have to foot a massive bill when the next disaster happens. 
Like I said with wildfires over the summer, communicating the links between climate change and floods is important, even as complicated as that frenemy ship is. During the floods in Vermont this past July, a Media Matters analysis found that from July 9th to 12th, ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC aired 171 segments on the topic, but only 18 mentioned climate change, one of which was to deny that climate change had any role in the disaster. Honestly, it's kind of rude to refuse to credit someone, even if they were just, like, running craft services. I know, the science is nuanced here, but actually communicating that nuance and acknowledging why this is so tricky is what builds trust. We don't have to act like we know all the answers, but we do know some answers, and it's important to earnestly share that. But coupled with that conversation is a conversation about solutions. Even as climate change intensifies the most extreme floods, we can take steps to address them, and those steps can take so many different forms. If people know that and remain hopeful, they can advocate for the solutions they like best, we can mitigate flood damage, and maybe the world will be safe enough for me to go restock on Pop-Tarts. And now, here's Emma with the news. My name's Emma, and this is your Weekend Update. African leaders have proposed new global taxes and financial reforms to support climate action, as outlined in the Nairobi Declaration during September's Africa Climate Summit in Kenya. The declaration will guide their stance at the upcoming 28th annual COP birthday bash extravaganza, which is what I'm now calling the COP28 Summit. I think more people will pay attention to COP28 if there were balloons and confetti cake, don't you? Even though Africa faces severe climate change impacts, it receives only about 12% of its required $300 billion in annual financing. And you thought your first grade allowance was bad. The funds raised during the summit, though significant, are viewed as insufficient to meet Africa's needs, emphasizing the necessity for more profound systemic changes and emergency PTA bake sales throughout the region. We would ask Shakira to record a reprise to her 2010 hit Waka Waka, but we all know how she feels about taxes. On September 6th, the Biden administration announced that it would prevent drilling in 13 million acres of pristine wilderness within Alaska's National Petroleum Reserve and has rescinded all drilling leases in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, promising to never compromise the environment of the Arctic's most prized cryptids, the Coca-Cola polar bears. While this move aligns with previous efforts to curb oil and gas exploration on federal lands, it won't halt the $8 billion Willow Oil Drilling Project, which was approved earlier this year. Despite its name, the project has nothing to do with whipping one's hair back and forth, or the Smith family at all. If it did, Jada would have told us about it already. These new protections build upon a previous commitment in March to ban oil and gas leasing in the Chukchi and Beaufort Seas, each home to a carbon bomb project, and probably lots of seals or plastic bags or whatever too. As we covered in our episode on the Willow Project, northern Alaska is currently facing immense economic challenges, so policymakers may want to continue finding ways to support these communities in lieu of these oil revenues, such as expanding the sexy Arctic fisherman calendar industry. A leading conservation NGO, African Parks, has bought the world's largest privately owned rhino herd, which was part of the Platinum Rhino Project to combat illegal horn trade. 
The Platinum Rhino Project, founded by John Hume after upgrading from the Gold and Silver Rhino Projects, aimed to sustainably breed southern white rhinos, obtain their horns, and ultimately flood the global rhino horn market, thereby reducing poaching incentives, conserving the endangered species, and making rhino horns about as unexciting as silly bands in 2014. It's over, Timmy. Nobody wants to trade for your rainbow castle anymore. Rhino horns can be obtained safely without killing the animal. It's akin to getting a tooth extraction, so the worst part is when in the middle of removing the horn, the herder asks the rhino how his brother's enjoying college. But poachers typically do kill the animals because, you know, they're dicks. Hence the optimism around the Platinum Rhino Project. Despite owning nearly 13% of the world's southern white rhino population, Hume faced escalating security and maintenance costs, and with the rhino horn trade remaining illegal under the Global Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species, his efforts became financially untenable. African Parks acquired the herd with the intention of rewilding them and anticipates the semi-wild rhinos will adapt well in their new environments. If they don't, I hear Disney's Animal Kingdom Lodge offers some lovely accommodations this time of year. While it is disappointing to see international law handcuff the Platinum Rhino Project, it is encouraging that the program succeeded in breeding enough rhinos that they can be reintroduced into the wild. On September 20th, the White House introduced the American Climate Corps, a new climate jobs training initiative aimed at employing 20,000 individuals in its first year. Think if the Peace Corps went to Reed College and was really passionate about cliff bars. Drawing inspiration from a Great Depression-era program, this corps will focus on projects like land restoration, community resilience to natural disasters, and clean energy deployment. Early reports tell us that Birkenstocks, Patagonia backpacks, and hydro flasks that are really loud when you drop them on the floor are all required parts of the uniform, and Subaru Forester owners will be receiving top priority consideration. Stanley Cup users and Range Rover drivers need not apply. Is life in plastic fantastic? Then a BMW Beetle is for you. Wind in your hair, shopping bags in the back, a giant three-foot monster cutting your hair whenever they want? Girl, you're a Barbie. Sure, you may spend majority of your time in the bottom of a toy chest naked or being chewed on by a dog, but you get a pink BMW Beetle. The BMW Beetle, because you're a Barbie girl, girl. Welcome back to Tip of the Iceberg. It's time for Ask Me Anything, where our listeners get a chance to ask me any environmental questions they may have. Submit questions via Patreon, email, or social media. Patron questions go to the front of the line, so be sure to sign up at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. So we have another caller question today. Uh, Scott, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So you have a question for us? Yeah, so I kind of had a question. Uh, I'm just trying to get your thoughts on something. So I've read a few articles about the president of the UN Climate Change Summit, and he's kind of like involved in big oil himself. And so he's kind of demanding these other countries to be like brutally honest. But at the same time, I've heard he's kind of hiding some of the stuff he's talking about. And so also, I kind of wanted to ask, like, do you think with like what we're seeing in Hawaii with the fires and around the world and stuff, if like climate change is becoming more like undeniable, if like some of these guys are going to start instead of just denying it, maybe like 
putting on more of a front to make it hiding what they're doing instead of just denying it, like maybe putting, you know, a face on and, you know, making it look like what they're doing isn't so bad. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's kind of been a bit of the shift that we're seeing. I think straight up denial where people say climate change isn't happening, just we don't see it nearly as much. And for good reason, like you said, there's just too much evidence around us that we can see. And the science is very, very, very clear on this. So what we're seeing more of There's still a little bit of the climate change is natural causes and not by humans, but even that I don't see quite as much. I think what we see more is people advocating what I hear termed as climate delay, which is more just we have time to deal with this. This isn't as concerning as people make it out to be. Um, And depending on who we're talking about, that, that can be true. There are some very doomer and alarmist folks out there as well but uh certainly climate change is a concern and something we we need to address and we have been addressing but yeah we also see with some of these oil and gas companies in particular they know that we're transitioning toward cleaner energy sources and they know that there is a period over the next decade or so that oil and gas will still continue to be primary energy sources and possibly a little bit beyond that. And so they're all kind of rushing to fill that demand. And so there's a lot of oil and gas development going on in the world that's kind of, everyone's just trying to rush to fill that void. And then at the same time, we see a lot of these companies advocating technologies like carbon capture, which would essentially allow them to suck carbon back out of the atmosphere. And a lot of them are trying to use that as a, I guess, justification to continue using carbon emitting energy sources. That's fine with the exception that solar and wind are just a lot cheaper than carbon capture for the most part. And then, yeah, there's a variety of different greenwashing things people will do as well. Um, what I what I thought was really funny, I think it was Shell that has one of the first solar powered gas stations that they were <laughs> bragging about. So there, this is a very long conversation. I can barely scratch the surface of, but I guess to tie back to your point about Sultan Al Jaber and the COP twenty eight conference, I think he has a unique opportunity in front of him. He, he is the CEO of uh, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, but he's also worked on the renewable side. And if he can kind of approach this earnestly, I think he would have a unique opportunity to foster some collaboration in good faith between uh, some of these energy companies and the climate movement, because... Ultimately, it would be in everyone's best interest if these companies could work together on this and transition to new technologies and as a, as opposed to resisting what is not just an important change for the climate, but a somewhat inevitable economic change. So if, if he could get through to them, that would be fantastic. Some of these stories that I've seen where 
his team is creating Twitter bots to prop up his name or changing his Wikipedia article to say he's the ally the climate movement needs. That kind of stuff gives me a bit of concern, but there's still a few months out from the conference and my my fingers are crossed that he can actually uh, seize that opportunity as opposed to not be an effective cop president. Yeah, I hope so too. I think that's a good point. Like, it's important to meet in the middle. Like, I think that's the only way we're going to get anywhere. Like, for the time being, like the, and not just the Salton, but just all these big oil companies, like they're not going anywhere right away. So without their help to like, you know, try to figure out these new technologies together, like, I think that's like the best way to do it, like you were saying. Yeah, absolutely. I I always find that Everyone wants clean air, clean water, and a healthy environment. That's never something I get pushed back on. And so if we can work together on that, and I don't want to say the foundation of our energy economy is a little thing, but I I know that we're at a place now where solar and wind are increasingly cheaper than these other energy sources. And if we can find ways to work together on that and transition together, as opposed to having to fight on this, it, it would be a lot easier. Right. Thanks so much for the question, Scott. That was, that was great. Oh, awesome. Thanks for having me on. And that does it for this week's episode of Tip of the Iceberg. The COP28 conference will be starting later this month and going into December, so we will be sure to keep you updated on that. Special thanks to our Emperor Penguin patrons, Lawrence Harris and Brownie Central. And if you want to support the show, you can either leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple or Podcast Addict, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. There you get merch, bonus content, and your questions move to the front of the line for tip of the iceberg thank you all for listening and i'll see you next week for a deep dive on maritime shipping this was a really interesting and surprising topic we'll be talking a lot about the jones act which if you haven't heard of your mind may be blown a little bit so uh be sure to tune in next week i will see you then Thank you.